Welcome back to the Jacobin Show. Um, you may have noticed my regular co-host Ariella is out today, and Paul was in the intro graphic. He's also not here, but we are joined by David Griscom, who uh, many of you may uh, be familiar with uh, from his prior work on the Jacobin Channel. He is also the co-host of the left YouTube show, Left Reckoning, um, which I described to somebody the other day as the only Western-themed left <laughs> show on YouTube. <laughs> Confirm or deny, David. <laughs> it's very true, and uh, we were really lucky to have Jen on uh, recently. I'm happy to be here hanging out on, on Jacobin. I love I love the opening piece. It really got me in the mood today. A little bit different from our theme on Left <laughs> Reckoning, but it's a, it's a good time nonetheless. Everybody check out Left Reckoning if you haven't subscribed already. Um, And of course, David, welcome to the show. Uh, Happy to have you on today for what I think is going to be a pretty good episode. Um, I I do want to mention, so Ariella and I actually um, recorded, pre-recorded the interview with our guest, Jennifer Silva. So stick around for that. It's it's a great interview. Um, Jennifer Silva is a sociologist and um, a professor at Indiana University. She's the author of the book, We're Still Here, Pain and Politics in the heart of America. Uh, we obviously borrowed the title for this episode from her subtitle. Um, and and her book is a really rich sort of in-depth series of interviews with working class people who are living in rural Pennsylvania, um, in coal country, in, you know, a very economically devastated town. And she began her study by, so, so when she started, she wanted to talk to sort of white, rural, self-identified conservatives. Uh, But the more she started talking to people in this town, she realized that there weren't actually that many dyed-in-the-wool conservatives. What was actually going on was that people were increasingly disengaging from politics altogether. Um, So that kind of becomes the subject of her book. Uh, one One question she really tries to answer is, you know, uh, uh, a lot of people, a lot of like liberal commentators often say like, well, why are people, why are these poor rural people voting against their interests? Or why don't, why don't they vote for change? Um, and she really tries to get at that. So again, stick around for that interview and you will get to see Ariella for that one. Um, so, so I guess to, to ask you a question, David, mm-hmm. uh, so, so, so I feel like you're, you're from Texas and South Carolina. So mm-hmm. you, you grew up in rural South Carolina, right? More or less. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I've mentioned on the show before, um, I grew up in Boise, Idaho. Uh, Boise is a small city. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's about 200,000. So, you know, I, I don't feel that I am in any way a representative of rural America. But Idaho is, of course, a deep, deep red state. Um, and Boise is... Um, it's not really... It's, it's not really like uh, Portland or Seattle, where it's like, you know, a, a hyper blue state in a red or a hyper blue city in a red state. Um, so it's not it's not like that. It's maybe more like Salt Lake. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was very conservative for a long time. I think it's slowly becoming bluer, um, but it is, you know, very much in the heart of red state, what we might call red state America. And uh, I think because I don't look like someone necessarily who people might think of as being from Idaho, mm-hmm. like I feel like when I, you know, went to college and then, you know, started living in New York, um, I started to hear a lot of 
things about red state America from, you know, self-described liberals. And and David, obviously, like there are tons of instances in the media of that. Um, I think one of the, the most famous ones after the 2016 election, the founder of Daily Coast, uh, mm. you know, famously, famously wrote that uh, uh, or said that, you know, coal miners in West Virginia should lose their health care because they had voted for Trump. Um, more recently, the LA Times columnist Virginia Heffernan, who, by the way, is known for uh, producing very unhinged columns, uh, wrote a, a kind of this long screed about how uh, she she was at her country home, you know, trying to ride out the pandemic, and her neighbors uh, had the audacity to shovel her driveway, uh, and and they're Trump supporters, so she really didn't know what to do with this. Uh, she goes through a kind of long meandering discussion of uh, how these neighbors are basically akin to French Nazi collaborationists. Mm-hmm. So, like, how can she be okay with them shoveling her driveway? And it's just like these instances may seem extreme, but I also, you know, I just want to mention, like, I worked for several years at, you know, what you might call a liberal think tank. And I heard stuff like this all the time. Like the people I worked with, you know, college educated, ostensibly progressive would say things like, oh, well, we should have just let the South secede. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. And what, there's that terrible book. I can't uh, remember the author's name, but it's like, let him leave. That was really popular about like eight years ago, too, right? Where it was like, oh, we just let the South secede. And then, you know, the GDP, you know, the economy mm-hmm. will be doing so much better if we don't have to deal with all these Southerners, you know, holding the country down. You know, forgetting, by the way, that, you know, one, the South is the poorest part of the country. So essentially what they're talking about with holding the country down is let's get rid of people in poverty, people who are in poverty, by the way, because of extractive industries, which pulled the majority of the wealth from the South up mm-hmm. north. Uh, mm-hmm. West Virginia is a great example of that, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, and two, that that's the most diverse uh, part of the country, too. So they're not even being very good liberals, right, if they're talking right. about wanting to care for people of color. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, when the people I'm referring to were talking about, you know, just letting the South secede, like the argument that you laid out, as flawed as it is, uh, it, it was already like a step further from what they were talking about. They were just like, we don't want to share a country with rednecks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, as you say, the South is incredibly diverse. Um, and also, you know, um, uh, letting the South secede, would, I mean, would have, in essence, been pr- protecting the institution of slavery. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I guess that's a good trade-off for not having to share a country with rednecks. No, exactly. Know. And it's, it's such an absurd idea, um, mm-hmm. too, you know, to also, uh, you know, to to paint that picture of, like, the redneck, right? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I've been called a redneck many times in my life, um, but, you know, there's not that much difference between rural people in, like, New York mm-hmm. State versus, like, rural people in the rest of the South, too. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that they, it sort of gets pigeonholed as, like, only, you know, Southern people. But, yeah, I don't know, man. It's it's a very funny thing. I mean, I, I always say, like, anecdotally, like, you know, I've been in New York. Uh, I'm at the end of my chapter in New York. I'm moving back to Texas in a week. But, uh, you know, every time I tell people I'm from Texas, there's always this awkward pause, right? Especially lefties, <laughs> where they're sort of waiting for me to apologize, <laughs> Uh, Or or to disavow it, right? Uh, Which Mm -hmm. is not um, something that, like, you know, who I am. But I think a lot of, like, Southerners, too, once they become left-wing, they feel like a part of that process actually has to be a disavowal, right? Mm -hmm. To Mm -hmm. sort of say, like, oh, I'm not – I'm, you know, I might have been born here, but I'm not really of this place. Which is just Mm -hmm. so unhelpful if you're Mm -hmm. a progressive or, you know, on the left like I am. Um, Because what you do then is you actually do, like – 
the fantasy that these kind of like liberals and particularly like, you know, Yankee liberals have about the rest of the country, right, is wrong. But you actually like create it if you're a Southerner who's then, you know, who is progressive and is somebody who's, mm-hmm. you know, pushing mm-hmm. back against that that grain. Um, if you, you know, if you spend all of your time disavowing your family, where you're from, your community, mm-hmm. everybody around you, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is something that I think, you know, these are... These are important issues. Don't get me wrong. I don't think they're the most important issues for the left to be dealing with, but right. um, you know, they are something to to think about. It's been a big part of like my political project is trying to make sure that people understand. It's like you know, you don't have to you know run away from home uh, to be on the <laughs> right. left, and you don't have to disavow again your family or community. All these things. There's mm-hmm. a proud mm-hmm. tradition that that part of the country um, that's been fighting uh, for justice, for economic mm-hmm. justice mm-hmm. since the beginning. Right. I, I think also, um, and I, I know you're going to get into this a little later, mm-hmm. so I won't steal too much of your thunder, but the kind of like liberal journalists like hating or, you know, like liberal white collar workers kind of like hating what they perceive to be rural America or like red state America or mm-hmm. the South to be like, that's just sort of, I think, like you said, that's not really even the most important issue. In a way, that's only the tip of the iceberg of a uh, of the Democratic Party abandoning those regions for decades. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, to make, you know, a little bit of a glib point, it's, it's like a lot of this comes from the fact that American liberalism today is very much an empty project, right? Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have a positive vision. Um, it doesn't really actually advocate for much structural change. What it really focuses on is being able to point uh, to issues. I mean, this is what Joe Biden has been doing since he's been president or even, you know, in the months going into it, which is like, oh, I acknowledge like the hurt and the pain of this mm-hmm. country. But when it comes time for him to send out the checks to people, when it comes time for them to actually address the structural issues, oh, well, we acknowledged it, right? Um, right. You know, so like so much of American liberalism is, is just about, um, you know, is, is this kind of lack of, of having a positive vision. So then what do you need to define yourself? You need You need a negative vision. Right. Mm-hmm. Like to define your politics, especially in a cultural sense, like a lot of these people do, you have mm-hmm. to be able to for, for there to be like the New York liberal. Right. Mm-hmm. There has to be the, the Georgia Bubba redneck. Right. <laughs> you know, they, it has to be like who I'm not, because there really mm-hmm. functionally is not going to be that much political difference between uh, people if you're not actually enacting any programs that are fundamentally different. Mm hmm. I think another thing that um, really, really like gets to me is the kind of uh, reverse engineering of having contempt for rural areas or the South by saying all of those people are racist. And I think you definitely saw that more after 2016, you know, when Trump was elected. Um, I we, we talked about this on a prior show, but, you know, you can you can you can go through the records and find like liberal commentators saying things like no more talking about the white working class. They're all racist. And mm-hmm. it's like, I don't think that is a, going to be an effective politics. Um, I mean, A, it's not true. B, um, B, that I, it's it's cruel. It's mm-hmm. cruel. And it's uh, it's it's I don't know. I, I, I'm like kind of at a loss for words because of how like counterproductive it is. Yeah, and I, you know, I would just, uh, you know, <laughs> just add onto this is that what we're actually seeing from a lot of states that that vote red is not so much this like embrace 
of from I'm talking about people who are in, in who live in red states uh, who are working class. Um, I actually should just say as a side note, I did a video for Jack Ben like maybe four or five months ago uh, on how socialists really shouldn't think about the country in red states versus blue states, right? Because mm-hmm. functionally, if you live in New York, right, and you're a socialist, we have the same opponents, right? We're not in power here. Right. That you do have, you know, the, that the kind of political fight that you have in Alabama. Right. Socialists mm-hmm. aren't in power there. Right. So in both of those states, the cultures are different, whatever. Like we can acknowledge those differences, but we're out of power and we need to get into power. Right. And if you're mm-hmm. a good socialist, you need to understand that the Democratic Party, just as much as the Republican Party, represents a class interest different from you. Um, you know, so I've always said that if you're a socialist, you really like, don't get me wrong, like pay attention to the history and all the uniqueness about all the parts of the country. But if you're thinking about these things, like where that, that lens is like your first and foremost impression um, and the first and foremost way that you're thinking about organizing in those states, you're making a huge categorical mistake. And mm-hmm. not to be, you know, sore or anything about this, but that is the, I've never gotten more hate. Like not just like, oh, I don't <laughs> like this. Like, like actually like screw you. How dare you say something like this? Because a lot of people, they, they do really hold on to this. It's a, it's a deep need, even amongst, you know, some people who consider themselves uh, to, you know, to be on the left. And mm-hmm. my, 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 uh, my final plea there would be to understand that when it comes to working class people, especially in red states, what we're seeing is not really this big shift over to the right wing voting, you know, Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're actually just seeing mass what I call voter depression, where mm-hmm. people don't think that politics is a viable way to change their lives. So mm-hmm. they step back. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and that, you know, that's, and if you don't understand, like that is something that if you want to build transformative politics, you need to understand both as a, you know, as a, as a challenge, uh, mm-hmm. but also as a huge opportunity to building a new kind of politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said. Um, so I, that's actually a really great segue into something that I wanted to get into, which is, um, as I mentioned, you know, Jennifer Silva's book, uh, uh, please stay tuned for her interview. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's really interesting. Um, and, and, you know, she interviewed, as I said, like over a hundred working class people. And, um, I, I say this to her in the interview, like the people she interviews, are, I mean, I mean, her interviews are so humanizing, like the people she interviews are both intensely rational and extremely idiosyncratic. And it just like it reminded me of like a lot of people I grew up around, um, you know, so people who like, would say things like, I mean, this is an example that she gives. Um, she interviews a woman who is like, you know, like, yeah, like, of course, Trump is racist, uh, but I'll probably vote for him. I mean, like, she was like a woman who was able to both condemn his racism, but also say like, well, I don't really see any other option. Like, I don't like any of the other candidates. And, uh, you know, I think that he could do something for me in addition to being a completely despicable human being. Um, so there's there are a lot of stories like that uh, in her book. So definitely please check that out. Um, but for my segment, I wanted to kind of look at some of the broader trends around pro- political participation today and like look at um look at who participates in politics and why so when most people talk about the political divide today uh they they're really talking about political polarization um or you know animosity between democrats and republicans right so Ezra Klein has a new book on political polarization which looks at this split um and then we hear this term a lot on the news so um i just picked this representative clip from CBS Increasingly, we Americans occupy alternate universes. To be honest, I inherited a mess. It's a mess. No, you inherited a fortune. We elected a mess. 
there is very little common ground left, only battling perceptions of reality. Are you all happy with the last 30 days? Neither side seems to have much use for the other, and in this age of the Internet and cable TV, very little is out of bounds. Donald Trump, America's wealthiest hemorrhoid. Democrats want to dissolve the borders. Isn't that what they wanted, open borders? Isn't that what the snake Obama did? There are legions driving the country further and further apart. President Trump has still done more for this country in the last 40 days than Barack Obama did in eight years. A Pew study finds 81% of voters say they cannot agree with the other side on basic facts. So, you know, to be fair, there are, there really are signs that political polarization in the U.S. has sharpened over the last few decades. However, that said, there's also growing evidence that, you know, the real split in the U.S. might actually be between people who follow politics closely and those who don't. So uh, this was written about in the New York Times, but recently a team of researchers uh, conducted a study where they found that the overwhelming majority of Americans really don't follow politics at all. So in their study, they, they, they found that um, about 50 to 20 percent of people follow politics closely, and then as many as 85 percent of people only follow politics casually or not at all. Um, and then on top of that, you know, the researchers also find that... Um, the sort of self-professed political junkies often have very different priorities than people who don't follow politics closely. So, for example, they write, Democrats and Republicans who don't follow politics closely believe that low hourly wages are one of the most important problems facing the country. But for hard partisans, the issue barely registers. So I think this is all to say, you know, there's a pretty substantial chunk of people uh, who who have concerns that we would probably gloss as political, such as raising wages, um, but they they're not constantly posting or paying attention to politics. Um, they don't think of themselves as political junkies. And I think the most troubling thing is that they're increasingly not participating in politics. So on that last point, um, you know, there are obviously multiple factors that lead people to disengage from politics. Um, and I guess I think that one major barrier is that the majority of working people, unfortunately, actually have very little influence on politics, even when they do try to express their political preferences. So um, a lot of you are probably familiar with this study, but a few years ago, the political scientists Martin Gillens and Ben Page, um, they, they sort of released this bombshell study where they looked at a decade of data to try to quantify uh, how policymakers respond to different groups. Uh, and they basically found that legislators are so disproportionately responsive to the policy preferences of economic elites uh, and, and of the business lobby that the influence of the average citizen on policymaking today is essentially zero. So they wrote a follow-up book and um, were interviewed in the Washington Post, and I just want to read a quote from that interview. So they write, even big majorities, 60 to 80 percent of Americans, get the policy changes they want only about 40 percent of the time. This has real consequences. Millions of Americans are denied government help with jobs, incomes, health care, or retirement pensions. They do not get action against climate change or stricter regulation of the financial sector or a tax system that asks the wealthy to pay a fair share. On all these issues, wealthy Americans tend to want very different things than average Americans do, and the wealthy usually win. 
So on a similar note, in 2018, a different group of researchers um, looked at the disconnect between members of Congress and their constituents, and they found that Congress members of both parties and their top aides um, pretty consistently misjudge what their constituents actually want. So for example, um, Congress members really tend to underestimate the public's support for things like background checks on gun sales. Um, They also... Uh, uh, underestimate quite a bit how much their constituents support things like raising the minimum wage and government spending on infrastructure. Um, And then, of course, at the same time, in 2017, Congress passes Trump's tax cuts, uh, which were very, very unpopular with the public. So this is all to say that you essentially have a political system that is wildly out of touch with most working people and at the same time extremely responsive to what rich people want, right? So Given that, I don't think it's a huge shock that poor and working class people are increasingly dropping out of the political process. Um, Now, that said, uh, just to reference, you know, something that we talked about last week when Amber Frost was on, um, while people are disillusioned with a political system, by and large, um, they don't want to get rid of the government. They just want a government that actually works for them, right? So we have a lot of studies of non-voters, um, and they pretty consistently show that non-voters want more government interaction or want more gov- government intervention, uh, which kind of goes against the fact that they don't vote, right? Uh, but we have these studies that you know uh, sort of consistently show that non non voters are more likely than regular voters to support initiatives like raising the minimum wage and increased government spending on healthcare, public education, and social safety net benefits. And this this uh, which is on the screen right now is just one study from California. Um, but you can see you know the graph here shows that. Um, that people who don't vote really do favor more state support when it comes to the safety net. Um, And they also say, uh, at least from this one study from California, that they want the government to do more to reduce inequality compared to people who vote on a regular basis. So, you know, what what this suggests to me is that the universal programs that I know we're always talking about on this channel, like Medicare for All, um, it's They'll obviously materially help the working class, um, but I think they'll also go a long way in in helping to break us out of this kind of vicious feedback loop where, you know, we have a political system that doesn't work well or respond to the preferences of working class people. So they increasingly disengage, um, which then means, of course, that elites have even more influence on politics because they're overrepresented at the polls. Um, so, you know, another way of putting it is if, if people who want stronger safety net programs actually start to see that the political system can deliver that to them, they'll be more inclined to participate in the future. Um, and, you know, trying to reach non-voters was, of course, this this major part of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, and unfortunately, in 2020, as we all know, um, it was not successful. But I I guess I still think that over the next five to 10 years, um, we just have to continue this project of trying to win back working class voters, especially in rural America. And um, when I say we should focus on rural America, like that's not just a moral obligation, although arguably it is because, you know, these are parts of the country that have been hit really hard by deindustrialization and unemployment. Um, Often rural areas struggle with, you know, uh, the opioid crisis. Um, So there, there is kind of a moral obligation to help rural workers. Um, But I would argue that focusing on rural areas also can be strategic, right? Uh, Because, you know, we we hear all the 
the time that institutions like the Senate and the Electoral College are, you know, anti-democratic and unfairly favor smaller states or rural states. And I think that that's all true. Like, I, I you know, wish we could abolish those institutions. Um, but the unfortunate reality as of now is that it's almost impossible to change the structure of the Senate, right? I mean, like, maybe we'll eventually add D.C. and Puerto Rico as states. Um, but for the time being, we we have to find a way to advance a left economic agenda under the system that we have. And I think that trying to win some rural districts might be one way of going about that. Um, and, and of course, you know, as I said, as we know from the Bernie campaign, um, it, it, it isn't going to be easy. This is definitely an uphill battle. Um, but I, I, I don't really see an alternative. Um, you know, the, the Democratic elite's position is essentially to write off these areas, right? Um, you know, to try to, I guess, let so-called demographic destiny run its course. Um, but but I think that this is a risky proposition, too. Um, and I think that you only have to look at the 2020 election for some proof of that. Um, if you look, for example, um, at a number of border towns in Texas, uh, whose residents are, of course, predominantly working class Latino immigrants, uh, you can really see that between 2016 and 2020, tons of those voters shifted to Trump. Um, perhaps even more of those voters dropped out, as as David alluded to earlier. Um, and, you know, this is after months of pundits speculating that Texas might turn blue because of demographic changes in the state. Um, and I want to quickly shout out a new article by Megan Day called The Indifferent and the Defiant, which is in the new issue of Jacobin, because um, she kind of gets into this phenomenon more and she does some reporting from some of those border towns. So I, I think on that note, um, I will now hand it over to David, an actual Texan, <laughs> who can maybe comment on some of those trends or um, yeah. or on political participation in rural areas. I, yeah, I mean, I definitely want to talk, talk about the Texas stuff. And I, I just also want to note, though, I really love what you said about, you know, the burning strategy to bring in new voters is something that is going to be really important going forward. And it's really important to note that even though we should take lessons from what happened in 2016, 2020, um, that the primary campaigns are very unrepresentative of the American voter as a whole, right? Like, yeah, the Bernie strategy is to bring a lot of new voters, and that's actually going to be a lot harder to do in a primary than in a general. Um, you know, so just like, you know, that's mm -hmm. something to give us hope if we want to continue with this right. strategy. Um, but the the Texas stuff was a was a complete disaster. And if you're if you're in Texas or hell, like a lot of other states in the South, too, there has been this fixation with like, you know, the new South and like demographics as destiny, which in a lot of ways has just made Democrats like extremely lazy um, in their okay. politics. Right. Because they're like, OK, we don't have to win over these states. Uh, they're just going to be given to us by, you know, by providence. And yeah, what you saw in, uh, you know, in this most recent election was that, you know, it should be noted, too, because I just don't want to mislead people that those uh, districts, those areas in the Rio Grande Valley that did see swings towards Trump were still overwhelmingly went to Biden. Right. right but the right. fact is, is that this is like if you want to win in Texas, you have to you have to run up the score in those mm -hmm. areas. And basically, you know, the Biden campaign completely fumbled, uh, fumbled the ball. Um, and 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 what's so frustrating about not just. Um, you know, the failure to be able to speak to people's, you know, material interest to do that kind of real work to bring people to the polls was the fact that the state party and the national party completely refused 
um, to listen to people, activists and organizers in those areas who are saying, hey, we need you all to show up because mm. something's happening here. And it goes to that point that you were making, which is that wealthy elites right, are much closer to the political process or they have their issues, you know, uh, addressed more than working class people. And that even goes, uh, you know, to like the, the Democratic Party in kind of like, you know, cynical, um, you know, calculations that they're making, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to try to win a presidential election. They're actually still going to ignore, um, you know, this group of people who they, you know, rhetorically are saying they support, um, mm-hmm. even at the risk of you know, like Donald Trump, you know, run right. up the score on, on right. Joe Biden in, 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 in Latino areas of Texas is absurd. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, just to put it out there, it wasn't just Latino areas in yeah. Texas. Um, the New York Times, if anybody is interested, sort of released some detailed maps um, over the course of the last few months. Um, a lot of immigrant neighborhoods, again, like you said, it's not that they turned red. Mm-hmm. They still, you know, voted for, ended up voting for Biden. But the shift between 2016 and 2020 um, is troubling. Or, I mean, mm-hmm. it should be troubling to the Democrats if they want to keep winning. Um, because I think that, you know... A, Again, Democrats are still safe in those areas, but like for how much longer? Well, and I, I think so, too. And it's also I mean, there, there's a couple of things that you have to note, like and this is true of a lot of states in the South, but particularly in Texas, like the Texas project of turning Texas into a solid Republican state, you know, was the brainchild of Rove, right? Mm-hmm. Something that he was actually laughed out of like Republican meetings uh, when he was suggesting it. Um, it was a solidly blue state, state for mm-hmm. a really long time. And they made a concerted effort to to win over the growing suburbs uh, mm-hmm. and the evangelical community, you know, to such an extent that now, like a lot of people, don't are surprised to find out that Texas has not been solidly uh, Republican for right. you know for most people's lifetimes. Um, and 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 one thing that's really dangerous about what the Democratic Party is is doing, which again gives us an opportunity to build socialist politics as an alternative to it, is they are doing this. They are essentializing people. Mm-hmm. Um, to such a, an extent that they don't recognize that while people do like identify as certain like ethnic groups or racial groups, right? They also are a part of the entire state's culture and community in the way that everybody right. else is, right. Right? right? Which means that they're going to be attracted to some of the things that you know anyway, you know that like the Republicans might be selling or rhetoric mm-hmm. or whatever. And mm-hmm. if you're not going out there and trying to win over those votes, you're basically you know just you know you're just sitting them out there for them mm-hmm. to be swiped away by the Republican Party. Right, and you right. can't do that uh, with what's happening in this country, uh, mm-hmm. because if, if the Democrats think that demographics are destiny, it's going to be a really dark time uh, for the next <laughs> few decades, because we're seeing right. everything we're seeing is trending in the opposite direction. Right, exactly. Um, and, and before um, before you get to your segment, I just want to make one last point that, um, uh, you know, I, I think that I think that I think that. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Um, I I, I guess I was going to say, I, I, uh, I, you know, the project of winning rural voters, Mm -hmm. um, I, like I said before, I, I think that we have to just continue the project. I don't think that there's any alternative. But that said, I also recognize how incredibly difficult it is. I mean, lots of rural voters don't want to go near any politician that has a D (laughs) next to their name right now, Mm -hmm. you know, or I mean, um, maybe I, 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 I guess, like you said, it's it, it was a long process of getting voters to that point. Uh, efforts made on on the part of the Republican Party, but also the Democrats increasingly abandoning those areas. So it's kind of difficult to know how we're going to reverse the turn. Um, mm-hmm. But I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I, 
You know, I, I think one of the things that is, is most important to, to note is basically, you know, the main thrust of your, your segment is that a lot of people who are, uh, you know, a lot of working class people, a lot of people just don't follow politics, you know, particularly closely. Um, and as much as they do, a lot of these people are voting defensively. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I said this to you when you were on Left Reckoning, but, you know, when you t- and as you were noting, too, you know, people are very fond of, you know, more government spending and these programs. Um, but they actually, they don't believe that you can do it. And why right. would they, right? Because if their entire life has been punctuated uh, with things just getting worse, mm-hmm. um, as people come into their communities every four years or whatever and promise them that things are going to get better, why would you think that politics is going right. to be a productive way to spend your time, right? That's why, you know, a lot of those have, you know, communities have very informal, right? They're not organized in the way that a lot of socialists romanticize, but very, you know, um, right, right. very, very comprehensive, like community support networks, right? Because they understand that we're the only ones who are going to be able to do it for ourselves, right? The the real task that we have is to convince people that, you know, politics can change their lives and that we actually have, uh, you know, a political program that's not just right, but is is winnable. And I think that that's mm-hmm. one thing that, uh, especially people who have come into like more socialist politics through Bernie Sanders, um, uh, you know, are really going to, uh, you know, are really going to need to, uh, you know, start preparing themselves to understand that it's not just about having the right argument for why we need Medicare for all. You really need right. to start proving to people that you can do it because most right. people are politically depressed and they don't believe you when you say uh, that these things can happen. Right. I have to adjust right. exactly. my camera real quick. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, on that note, I actually think that's a pretty good segue to your segment about class and uh, how we should be thinking about it. So yeah. take it away. Yes, that sounds good. I mean, you know, there's no doubt that talking about class in, in the United States is extremely, um, you know, can be extremely difficult. Um, it's something that can be a lot easier to do at the societal, um, at the societal mm-hmm. level. But it's not something um, that once you start putting the microscope on it, it becomes very, very difficult to understand. And a big part of that is because if you grow up in the United States, you've learned to really think about class as like more of a cultural phenomenon uh, than a than a political or social economic uh, phenomenon. Um, you know, and in the United States, especially, that's going to be very true because so much of our politics is filtered through this kind of uh, cultural lens. You know, frankly, many people have replaced the class with cultural symbols, tastes, and preferences, and that's extremely unhelpful. I mean, this is a country that has over 300 million people in it. Um, People have very shared and unique histories. People have all sorts of different relationships to property and work. We have property owners, gig workers, etc. You know, the list goes on and on and on. America, the melting pot. We all know the cliche. But socialists understand and really need to advocate for this idea that it's not only useful, but politically strategic to work to untangle class and that discussion around class from society. To do socialist politics, we can't think of class in terms of cultural affects or consumer choices or, frankly, even tax brackets. We have to understand these as distinct material relationships. And, and so much of the way that we talk about class in the United States has very little to do with politics. Let me give you an example. Think about this pseudo-conflict we had uh, after the January 6th chapter, right, where you had Trump superfans storming the Capitol building. Uh, we have this spat here between Anderson Cooper and Sean Hannity over the Olive Garden. Of, of completely unpatriotic, 
completely against law and order, completely unconstitutional behavior. It's stunning. And they're going to go back, you know, to the Olive Garden and to their the Holiday Inn that they're staying at in the Garden Marriott. And they're going to have some drinks and they're going to talk about the great day that they had in Washington. And they really did something and stand up for something. And they stood up for nothing other than mayhem and, and a man who is you know, in the despicable waning days of a failed president. There's nothing wrong with Olive Garden. Let me just give a plug for Olive Garden. I like Olive Garden. I like their their salad, unlimited, uh, unlimited uh, garlic breadsticks that are phenomenal. Some nights you get unlimited pasta. They got these hot donut-like things that you put like chocolate sauce or caramel on. It's great. Really delicious. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just it's so good and it's ex- especially juicy when you remember, you know, that these are two multimillionaires. You know, Sean Hannity, you know, decades long host, um and you know, Anderson Cooper, a literal member of, you know, the Vander, you know, member of the heiress, uh, sorry, the um the son of an heiress of the Vanderbilt family, right? That's how so much of class politics is sort of waged in in the United States in this kind of very fake, very empty rhetorical battle between brand preferences, right? Oh, the left doesn't like Olive Garden. Oh, strong working, you know, hard working folks like Sean Hannity, uh, you know, prefer the Olive Garden. I mean, it's completely ridiculous, and this whole thing is a joke. These conversations obviously drive cable news, and a whole host of political discourse in this country runs the exact same place. And the real problem with this is not just that it's ridiculous and doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't, the working class doesn't gain anything from this kind of political theater. But this kind of understanding is present everywhere. Class in the United States in its common colloquial usage can be just as confusing. You know, people use it oftentimes to describe individual attitudes or dispositions. You know, think about a common example. Someone who is well-spoken or generous, you say, oh, that person has class. But even more damaging, um, you know, than just that is that when people talk about class, not as an economic relation or political one, but as a cultural one, we use things like clothes, mannerisms, interests to be the pure representatives of, of class, not economic positions or job status. Think about these kind of pseudo conflicts we see all the time in the American, you know, in American pop culture, McDonald's versus Starbucks, Walmart versus Trader Joe's. There are whole cottage industries devoted with pumping up these kind of pseudo class wars in the country um, that are solely defined by people's relationship to cultural products. That kind of usage is essentially divorced from any particular political strategy or normative principles. And we see this in political speeches of free marketeers and even progressive do-gooders. When it's not that kind of analysis, making distinctions between individuals and their associated class status is nearly always put in terms of linear increases of stuff. You know, that stuff is almost always wealth, which, don't get me wrong, is a pretty good start. You know, we can understand concepts like if you make $20,000 a year, you you may be poor, right? If you're making 150000 plus, you may be rich. But the starting and end points of these measurements get really unclear, and they get very murky in the middle. More later on why this matters. This kind of thinking really obscures class, the actual social and economic relationships between people that get at the heart of what class really is in a capitalist society. The socialist approach to understanding class 
to put it very crudely, is to distinguish between the haves and the have-nots. Or if we're going to put it more precisely, to make the distinction between those who own the productive, wealth-generating apparatuses and structures in society and those who don't, and therefore need to sell their ability to work, to gain access to the means of sustenance. I'm talking about food, shelter, clothing, medical care. Listen to this. Do you own a business and make your wealth off of the labor of others? Or do you have to show up to work every day to labor under the supervision of a boss or manager? We have this first quote up here, uh, Kale, uh, to put it as simply as possible from the great Eric Owen Wright. The significance of class is that what you have determines what you have to do to make a living. If class is devoid of meaning, what it really becomes about is brand preference or affectation. Frankly, politics is just going to be about the culture war. And that is very preferable if you're at the top of this society, materially benefiting from capitalism and want things to stay the same. But if you want to fundamentally change the society and not only improve working people's conditions, but bring working people into power, we have to avoid the substitution of class for culture. It has to also be said that just because we are all in a class location in capitalism does not mean that one acts consciously only in the interest of everyone in that class. As individuals, we typically look out for ourselves and those we care about. That's only natural. There's nothing that automatically is going to bring people in solidarity with each other. There's potential, but it's not a given. Building a working class that is actively conscious of itself and fighting for its political interests is a process. It's not something that's going to be ready-made for us, and we're going to have to build it. That's why the mater this materialist analysis is really important to building socialist politics. But the left also has to be wary of an exclusively uh, a cultural analysis of class. Decades of the neoliberal war on the working class have been fueled by the concept of a culture of poverty. The idea that people are poor, not because of the structure of capitalism, but because they have a bad cultural or moral failing that produces poverty. From both the Democratic and Republican Party, this conception has caused great harm to working people while also successfully moving the debate over poverty in the United States from the economic sphere to the cultural and personal. That was a major influence on Bill Clinton's disastrous move to change welfare as we know it. But that's no relic. Check out this report from Obama's Commerce Department that was put together in the midst of the financial crisis to the then Vice President and now President Joe Biden. So this uh, report analyze what it means to be middle class in the United States. And they said, middle class families are defined by their aspirations more than their income. The Commerce Report assumes that middle class families aspire to home ownership, a car, college education for their children, health and retirement security, and occasional family vacations. <laughs> Again, that's them, that's the liberals, defining class solely through the products that people can consume. It gets nowhere close to making that serious analysis between people who have to work to survive versus people who don't have to work and are able, able to reap off and benefit from the labor of others. And these definitions have had serious consequences for the working class. And I think that most leftists and socialists are fairly well-versed in what has happened with that kind of liberal war on the, uh, you know, the culture of poverty. 
But we've seen this new development um, regarding the a cultural conception of class that has really been proliferating amongst the left. You know, where people are calling out structural barriers that the working class faces as classist, which can make the struggle against capitalism appear as if it could actually be overcome if there were just more sympathy and understanding by the ruling class to the working class. I'll tell you right now, this perspective is severely lacking in the understanding of power. Certainly many rich people have a general aversion and contempt for working people. That's very true and it's disgusting and we should call it out. But the main problem with bosses is not that they are classist against you. The problem is that they pay you less in wages than you make for them in profit. Now, you may be saying, why does this matter? Why do we need to know who's in what class? And I promise you that this is not just an academic definition. There are serious political implications of knowing what someone's material interests are, knowing if somebody um, is directly tied uh, to capitalism as a whole, to this system that we're living in. Um, that is good information to have to understand whether or not you should try to organize that person. You might fail to convince a worker, or you might find an occasional class trader coming from the ruling class to your side. But by and large, class is what is going to set the fault lines of this battle. There's a big step, for example, between recognizing that you are getting screwed by your boss and recognizing that you are a member of a class that has been getting screwed your whole life. And in fact, that class that you are a part of has been getting screwed over since the beginning of capitalism and that you need to take collective action to fight back. Our opponents benefit from obscuring this dynamic. That's why you see this kind of theater between people like Cooper and Hannity. They'd rather see society engage in endless culture war while they wage a class war unimpeded. People are rightfully frustrated and angry about their lives. The culture war is a perfect way to capture that energy and to divert it. Capitalism alienates us from one another and makes us feel that this is the best it can get. But it's not. We have, to, we have the power to and can build a better world. And it's the job of political organizers to bring people together around a working class political project based on people's shared material interests. Class conflict is happening all around us, and we need to make that conflict political. So I, I feel like I should uh, take the question that you asked me when I came on Left Reckoning, which is how do we move from culture war to class war and direct it back at you? <laughs> I think I think the first thing that we have to start, you know, doing, and a, and a lot of socialist organizations uh, do this, but we really need to try to frame all of these fights that we're having in politics as as class fights, right? Um, so, for example, when we complain about somebody like Jeff Bezos, right? Um, you know, there are people, uh, you know, who has more money than God, right? Absolutely disgusting. When we can make challenges to him and say like, oh, why doesn't Jeff Bezos, you know, invest more in fighting homelessness, right? Or, you know, any, you know, sub in any billionaire to that situation. Well, to understand why would they? Because they use homelessness as a tool to be able to exploit workers all across the spectrum. Amazon would not be able to keep people in those horrible conditions that it keeps people in if they did not have the specter of homelessness and hunger that come with unemployment in the United States, right? And taking that second level uh, analysis 
um, I think is something that's going to be really important for us to do rhetorically because like most people are against inequality, like, you know, as like a Mm -hmm. concept, right? Oh yeah, that's unfair. But people really need to understand that not only does inequality play a structural role and there's a reason why it exists, uh, but it also exists to, you know, to hurt you, right? To keep you down, to put you in a certain perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. I think in addition to, you know, the various uh, elites, uh, your Anderson Coopers and Hannity's who, you know, kind of foment the culture war in order to like keep their ratings up or to, you know, put on a show or whatever. Um, it, it also occurs to me that that the Democrats and the Republicans, by and large, also engage in culture mm-hmm. war um, by by, you know, um, uh I mean, there's stuff like, of course, like abortion and, you know, immigration, which you can think of as as cultural issues. Um, But then, of course, you know, the Democrats, again, are seen, I think, sometimes not wrongly as kind of the party of like the, you know, uh, like arugula eating (laughs) elites or whatever who are like looking down on like real heartland Americans Mm who are... I don't know, like driving pickup trucks or whatever. Um, and I and, and I'm not saying that's a good that's a good sort of you know conception or model to like like build politics off of exactly. But but how do we get around that? Because I do feel like since we're talking about rural voters, mm-hmm. there is a sense which again I don't think is completely misplaced that like oh the Democratic Party is not for me. Like these people like don't respect me. You know. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And I, I mean, like, again, it's one of those things where obviously, you know, they, they don't. And I think the mm-hmm. advantage that we have as, as socials and doing the kind of organizing that we're able to do is that we don't have to paint a picture mm-hmm. um, that like Kamala Harris has your interest. Like we can go into those conversations <laughs> and say, yeah, you're 100 percent right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, Ted Cruz is a monster um, <laughs> as, as well. Right. And, you know. And the way that these guys try to play working class people on, on TV is, I think most people actually even understand that it's for show. Yeah. Um, to, you know, so it, it goes both ways. But um, I, I mean, for, for like a lot of the liberals, um, you know, it, again, it's so deep in that culture that they don't actually want to traverse it, even if they think it would, you know, get mm-hmm. them, get those, those kind of votes. I think one is, um, you know, to push back against uh, these kind of false narratives you know, for example, that like, you know, just to talk about kind of culture that I'm familiar with, you know, places mm-hmm. where I'm from, you know, which is like, you know, white Southern guy, right? Um, you know, country music is not ignorant, right? It's mm-hmm. not reactionary. It has a very radical history. Um, and it has a history that has been completely co-opted. So if you like Willie Nelson, right, you should be standing with the American indie movement. If you like Chris Christopherson, hell, he supported the Sandinistas, right? Like these, these stories um, have been sold to us, especially over the past like 30, 40 years to completely obscure of the radical nature of, mm-hmm. of these regions. And I actually think to dig even deeper than just kind of like, you know, pop culture icons or, you know, uh, music icons, all of these communities have really deep uh, you know, radical roots too. And mm-hmm. I, you know, something that Matt and I always say on, on Left Reckoning is like, if you were trying to organize in your community, learn a little bit about, you know, what was happening there a hundred years ago. And more often than not, you're going to find like a labor struggle. If you're able to mm-hmm. root it in something that is like familiar to people, right? And to say, mm-hmm. hey, this ain't some foreign idea. This isn't some idea that's coming from another part of the country. This is like, this is the soil, the place that you live in. Um, mm-hmm. I think you're going to have a lot stronger of a, you know, of a, uh, you know, of a rhetorical appeal. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And it reminds me of two things. One, uh, when the West Virginia teachers went on strike, uh, a lot of them referenced uh, coal miner families mm-hmm. uh, that they came from who, you know, had gone on strike decades prior. Um, and I don't know if you remember a big thing uh, uh, was that they would wear the red bandanas as an homage to mm-hmm. the coal miners of, of, you know, prior generations. Um, and the other thing is, um, you know, we're going to we're going to run this Jennifer Silva interview in a little bit. And one of the things she talks about is in this depressed uh, Pennsylvania coal country, a lot of the people who were struggling did have these, you know, sort of labor history backgrounds, even if it had been one or two generations Mm -hmm. since they were connected to them. And so you would see people saying things like, you know, again, people, people who in some ways were very conservative or in some ways were kind of like anti-government would also say things like, well, like I'm a big, I'm a big entitlements guy. Like I really, you know, like I think that the government should be looking out for people. And also like, I really like unions. And so like, there was just a lot, there are a lot of different pieces going on. And I mean, like, as somebody who grew up, you know, in in a rural area, um, who has also lived in Texas, like you must know tons of people like this. Who, it, I mean, it's not so cut and dry, right? Well, I mean, I think you know one one of the most. It, it's just something that I oftentimes you know try to draw like some you know some encouragement from. Um, I remember spending time with you know with friends and and, and families. Uh, you know, when I was in, when I lived in South Carolina, I lived in a very poor community, right, um, and and, you know, most of my friend's parents were truck drivers. Mm-hmm. And I remember just like sitting outside one day with everyone and they were drinking beer. And one of my friend's dad, who was like, you know, he was a right wing. I wonder if he even voted. I actually have no idea mm-hmm. um, or not. But, you know, he definitely wasn't like a social liberal or anything like that. Right. right. But he would often go off, you know, after a couple of beers and, you know, would be really prideful in his work. And he would say, like, if I stop working tomorrow, this entire thing would shut down. All yeah. of these other people who look down on me, these like lawyers and folks, like everything would keep on running. We could shut this entire country down in a day if mm-hmm. all the truckers got together. And I always think about it's like. You know, that's right there. I mean, that is that is prime like labor, you know, consciousness, right. worker consciousness, um, you know, and all of those other things are, are things that, you know, we are going to have to learn from each other and like grow together and, and struggle. I've always said um, that a lot of these issues that people say and like, you know, Adolph Reed, um, who's done really great work in South Carolina. Um, organizing specifically around Medicare for all makes this point all the time that whatever anxieties people have about sort of merging communities that might be segregated from each other in those areas, um, those like differences, they grind away pretty quickly when you get people in a room together and they start saying that they want to achieve uh, health care and they start to realize that they're all facing the same kind of you know problems. That's mm-hmm. the story today as it was you know in, in the populist movement um, mm-hmm. as well, right? And I just think that like you know um, there, there's a consciousness there that it's like it's much more um, close to the top than I think a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know whatever other anxieties. We have those things um, can only be alleviated by by doing that kind of work of getting people together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that is actually a very perfect transition to um, the interview now, which again, Jennifer Silva is a sociologist and the author of the book, We're Still Here. Um, so please enjoy and we'll be back after the interview. We are talking to Jennifer Silva, the author of the book, We're Still Here, Pain and Politics in the Heart of America. Let's see if I can get this in frame. There we go. 
So Jennifer, I wanted to start off by asking you to just give our viewers a description of your book. We're still here. What was the purpose of the project and who are the subjects of the book? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. And so I started this research in 2015 and I wanted to address the age old question of why working class people seem to vote against their own interests. Um, so, you know, we know from lots of statistical research that people who are poor, ethnic and racial minorities, younger people tend to either not vote or vote for candidates who seem to go against their economic interests, for example, you know, the Republican Party that would support business over labor. And I was just interested in understanding this phenomenon, but I wanted to do it by emphasizing people's identities and the stories they tell about themselves and how they make bridges between their own life experiences and the political sphere. So I wanted to start with this idea that we don't really understand interests until we talk to how people understand their interests from their from the viewpoint of their own lives and their own identities. So I entered into uh, this coal mining community in Pennsylvania, and I began with talking with white people, white working class people who had experienced the heyday of coal. They had, you know, their grandfathers were coal miners and had also been watching for maybe two generations how the jobs went away and then families started suffering from addiction or from mental illness because of uh, the lack of jobs and trying to understand how they dealt with decline. But then on top of that, um, it turned out that even though this had predominantly been a very white area, there were Black and Puerto Rican people who were moving from cities into this area because the rent was very cheap. And so I also then kind of unexpectedly got to see racial tension playing out in rural America, which is also a national trend of increasing diversity in rural America, and to also understand how both race and class shaped people's identities. So uh, as a kind of follow up to that, I, I noticed in your book, you, as you were saying, you mentioned that you started off by kind of um, thinking that your focus was going to be white working class um, Americans, you know, in, in rural Pennsylvania. And you say something to the effect of, I wanted to focus on those that identify as conservative. But then you go on to say that, well, people didn't really break down that neatly. Actually, people were way more disconnected from the political process and from political labels um, than you had originally imagined. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how you kind of um, started realizing that or how you how you sort of uh, entered into speaking about politics with uh, your interviewees? I think I had the totally wrong idea. I was looking for this idea of kind of white working class conservatives who like the Tea Party or who watched Fox News and, you know, we're all about uh, supporting big business and we're kind of culturally conservative. And so then I started talking to people and, you know, in Pennsylvania, there is this rich history of uh, union organizing and sort of there is a story to be told about fighting against the coal companies and exploitation. And so the people I talked to, no one basically no one was like, yes, we support the Republicans. You know, we, instead they were actually very critical of economic exploitation. Um, and they were very critical, for example, of politicians who they thought, you know, had these deep pockets because they were bought off by corporations. They were extremely critical of the ways that, um, you know, laws and 
in the US have favored businesses and you know at the expense of workers and they'd say things like how are you ever going to support a family on $9 an hour you know why is college so expensive like kids have no opportunity today and so they were very economically cr uh, critical and so on my whole kind of story that I started out with tended actually ended up being so wrong and there's always caused a little bit of panic for me in the field because all of the I categories I thought I would use uh, weren't working. And it ended up being like a much more complicated story of distrust and also distrust and alienation in their own lives that would lead to the kind of distrust and withdrawal from politics at a national level. Yeah, you know, one of the central themes in the book that you start to get through reading these really powerful like vignettes into people's lives is the way that they balance narratives of personal responsibility or personal development or, you know, self-help with the dissolution of social services or social institutions that might provide a foundation for the things that they seem to prize. So there's this tension between the rugged individualism that, that a lot of these people use to cope with their circumstances and, and make virtue out of their suffering. And then the desire to, to say, I want to enter into nursing school and getting caught in these predatory processes. Can you talk about the way that the institutions that they do have recourse within kind of shape their sense of self-development, their opportunities, and then further demobilize and um, alienate the people that enter into them? That's such a good point. So I think sometimes we think about distrust and alienation almost as psychological problems. Like, you know, people have given up and they're fatalistic and they don't understand mm -hmm. that they have a voice. And I would say that they're actually quite rational because the people I interviewed kind of from childhood, they have learned over and over again that institutions that are supposed to help them end up being sites of betrayal and actually hurt them. And that might be, for example, foster care systems. It might be, you know, early experiences, especially for people of color in the criminal justice system and schools where, you know, they're kind of pushed out of schools and they're, you know, accused of crimes and just seen as deviant from the beginning. And um, they certainly experience um, just, you know, corruption and betrayal, for example, in for-profit colleges where they end up in tons of debt, but don't actually have any skills. Um, and mm -hmm. it, the list kind of goes on and on. And, you know, for them, it's very rational, I would say, to not put your trust in politicians or not put your trust mm -hmm. in big institutions. Because if they end up hurting you in the end, you, you do have to sort of, for them at some point, say, you know, I am on my own. Like, maybe that's not how it should be. But if I want to make it in life and I want to survive and I want to keep some sense of self intact, then I really do have to go off on my own and stop asking for help. Mm hmm yeah. yeah, I think um, also something that struck me about your book is, um, as you were saying, people, the people you interviewed are are extremely rational in one sense, but they're also at the same time very idiosyncratic uh, when it comes to kind of understanding their political interests. Um, and uh, I, I think one really interesting frame that you put forward in your book is is um, you call it pain management, right? Uh, so you you sort of talk about how um, how the working class interviewees, um, on the one hand, as you were saying, they they lots of them have what we might call a structural critique, right? Like they understand uh, that 
sort of external factors beyond their control are shaping their lives, uh, that there's rampant economic inequality and, you know, racial inequality, inequality of all kinds, uh, that the economy is essentially rigged and that, you know, is more or less designed to redistribute wealth upward. And at the same time, um, they can articulate all of that, but they also turn inward. Um, and as Ariella was saying, they sort of turn to these narratives of self-help. Um, you mentioned in your book, you know, a lot of your interviewees kind of thank God for the opportunities that they have been afforded, or they they actually thank God for the hardships that have come to them, which they sort of uh, recast as opportunities. Um, and and again, I, I really like sort of your um, frame of pain management, because in the county you study, um, there's also a lot of opioid dependency. So I feel like that that was kind of like a double meaning there, right? Um, so it can was, you, yeah. yeah, yeah. So can you kind of flesh out this concept of pain management and talk a little bit about um, this inward turn? Sure. So this is kind of another example of, I would ask people all of my interview questions. I was about like policies and politicians they liked and, you know, do you feel patriotic? And people would sort of um, shift away from those questions in the interview and they'd focus on their own lives. And I think for many of them, it was kind of therapeutic to tell me about their lives. And, you know, pain was so central to their stories that I made an argument about pain being sort of a central organizing feature of working class lives. And so they would tell their story as a kind of arc where they would ex experience extreme suffering. And then they would hit a point where they realized that they had to protect themselves and that this pain had made them stronger, that it served a purpose in their lives. And from there, you know, for example, they might say, I, you know, was addicted to heroin and I had a very troubled, abusive childhood and everything kind of went wrong for me. But I reached a point where I realized only I could save myself. I was the only one who could detox. You know, I don't want any medicine to detox. I want to do it myself and learn the hard way. And that's kind of how life should work. So they were like very proud of that. Mm -hmm. And that would kind of lead them to. Um, I think two ways of thinking about the world, which would both of which ended up in political withdrawal. So self-help mm -hmm. literature and this idea that you can heal yourself, you can heal your heart. That was something that especially women focused on and also conspiracy theory. So mm -hmm. kind of searching for signs that the world is not to be trusted and that everything is rigged against you and you could outsmart it. You could understand that was going on and you could organize your lives so you could protect yourself against it. Yeah, I want to talk about the conspiracy theory element, because one of the subjects in the book, like very plainly is like, the US government will try to kill you. And many of the others echo this idea that, you know, systems are set up in a rational way to explain the um, tremendous amount of pain that they're in or the suffering that they see around them. Um, and I think that it's pretty reasonable. I mean, having grown up um, in poverty myself and used government assistance, I think I came to that conclusion as a kid as well. I was like, you know, this is not set up to be easy or accessible. I remember getting really sick and getting denied care because they said, oh, we don't see Medicaid patients. You start to think like, there must be some reason that this is happening to me. And you can either go towards a broad abstraction that explains almost mythologically why these systems constantly are mismanaged, right? And it provides a rationale for that, which is eliminating a good portion of the American populace in some instances. And then you also can turn inward and say, 
Um, I can only develop myself. And I think that's also a rational response to shifting the risk onto individuals, right? So all of these institutions that are promising um, to help people with really dire issues like opioid addiction or um, housing insecurity, food insecurity, um, job loss, they end up transferring the risk onto individuals as much of the capitalist economy does. And these individuals make the rational decision to say, well, if it's going to be me anyways, I'm cutting myself off from the, these other predatory institutions and I'm not relying on anything else. So I wanted to see if you could go into more of the um, psychology of this demobilization the rationale, and also why conspiracy theories lay at the center of um, creating narratives around these dynamics for people. It's, yeah, that's such a good question. So it's like when you listen to their stories and, you know, the stories they tell about their lives, they, they are giving their lives a sense of meaning and purpose so that they, it doesn't really feel random, but you, they organize their stories in a way that kind of tries to make everything make sense and everything have a purpose. And, you know, in some ways, like they are, it's very easy for them, as you just said, to take experiences from their everyday lives and um, construct a narrative about institutions actively seeking to harm them because they actually are. So for example, mm -hmm. many of the black women I spoke with talked about how um, a local hospital, when they showed up and said they were pregnant, would offer them like an abortion pill or offer mm -hmm. them birth control. And it's like for them, like that was like a very clear example of an institution um, attempting to harm them or attempting to harm their baby or being drug tested um, at the hospital after giving mm -hmm. birth, even oh. they had no prior uh, drug use at all. Um, and so it's like, clearly this is not like coming out of nowhere. It's not just paranoia. There's mm -hmm. lots of evidence in their lives. Like, same thing with like black men and um, Hispanic men in the book who are constantly being pulled over or put in jail um, for mm -hmm. things that they hadn't done while, you know, the white men are, you know, marching in their militias with their guns around town. So I think and, you know, for the white men, too, there's also lots of examples of institutions not working in their best interests um, as working class men and women. So, I, I mean, I think then there's sort of almost like a line where um if, if that's happening in your everyday life, you start to see like all kinds of examples of that happening. So it can go into, for example, oh, there's the fluoride in the water is about mind control and making sure we don't rise up against the government. Or, you know, the when you see a plane going in the air and there seems to be smoke coming out of it, like that's, you know, population control um, mm -hmm. or camps. And um, it's like, it's really hard to say like what's rational and what's not. Because, you know, of course, there are real conspiracies and, you know, there are, you know, for example, like drinking water in Michigan or something like there's lots of examples of governments hiding things that hurt people and not caring about poor people. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think it gave people a sense of pride and control to feel like if they were smart enough and stayed alert and they used their phones to do their own research, they could avoid being brainwashed. And um, so they would take these very radical critiques. For example, they'd say, like, you know, the mil I'm not going to be, like, proud of the military. Like, you know, the U.S. is a bully. And, you know, if they send me overseas, it's just to, like, you know, fight against other, like, poor, disadvantaged people. And it's all for mm -hmm. money and doesn't mean anything. So they could take a really, like, radical critique. But then at the same time, then start talking about fluoride or start talking about how the attacks on 9-11 
um, not only were they profitable, which Mm -hmm. ended up being true, but that they also never happened and that it was Mm -hmm. all like Mm -hmm. a way to control us. And so, but then you're like, well, um, that I think that also makes a lot of sense. And there's lots of places in the internet where you can get lost in conspiracy theories. And if someone says that's not true, you say, well, you're just part of the cover up. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of becomes this, um, like self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. It also seems to replace, um, in the same way that the white supremacist groups do, the social bonds that you might have gotten from other groups. Like if you're in a union, you have a critique of your um, boss and your relationship to them that's based in your relationship to other workers and your relationship to other industries. If you don't have a union, maybe you have QAnon. (laughs) Yeah, And maybe if you don't have a community center and you feel alone and you're suffering and pain, you know, that feeling, no matter who you are, makes you want to reach out until nobody's there to help. You know, it's so primitive. um, And I mean that in a good way. It's like what, what a baby does, right? They feel pain. They want to see their pain reflected in another person who cares and can ameliorate it. And a lot of these conspiracy theories, they're, they're not just focusing on for instance, QAnon, um, it provides a narrative to people who feel like they've lost their kids. And and that can be from opioid addiction or from any other number of things. Or anti-vaccination, people who talk about the health of other people in their community as though it's very important and really matters and they help them navigate these things that they don't have the resources to navigate so it, it seems like it, it, you know, it can spiral into the realm of like the fantastical in some of the um, <laughs> anecdotes that you have in your book. You are reading stuff that just seems like, you know, wildly um, ineffective at what they think it's supposed to do, right? Even as a conspiracy. But it seems to have reoriented social bonds, I think that's um, true, um, but not, as you said, in the local union or the local bar or church, but instead on the internet with people who are not um, with you in real time. Like they're, you know, mm-hmm. if say you say, oh, there's fluoride controlling my mind. If someone like that you trust locally is like, that's not true. Like maybe you'll rethink it, but on the internet, you can easily just talk to people who agree with you. And mm-hmm. so there, you don't have a lot of um, local organizing or you don't have a lot of local conversation and why would you if you don't really trust the people around you or you think they're dangerous Mm -hmm. Mm. so what i wanted to ask you is you know we've talked about kind of this inward turn and people moving away from politics and sort of retreating to self-help and something that you mentioned in your book is um that you know, obviously, in some ways, this is very worrying. Um, it sort of creates a chicken and egg situation where pe- when people are kind of deprived of social institutions, they, you know, obviously, as we've been saying, retreat sort of inward, and then that further removes them from the political process. Um, but something that you talk about in your book is that it's not necessarily all bad, or or you, you, you identify that there might be some moments of hope in there. Um, can you talk about how your interviewees kind of found dignity and community while they were sort of participating in this inward turn and like where we might be able to go from there? Yeah. So the way I was thinking about this was, you know, typically we, we think about how do we connect the individual up to a collective? And it seems like, you know, the way we, we I was expecting them to do that was through social class, maybe an identify as a work 
working class person identifying as a worker. Um, but that didn't really seem to be happening. So it was like almost like I was trying to find a different like mediating uh, construct that people could use to connect the individual up to a larger group. And I, I was at a uh, group that met every week for families who had a family member suffering from addiction. And I was just mm -hmm. sitting there. And one of the things I noticed was that in this group, people would share stories of suffering. And it was a place where people would not only empathize, but they'd also like share advice. Like, you know, have you thought about applying for a housing voucher? Or, you know, if you think about what to do in order to get medical assistance and how might we make this, this was like totally run just by like everyday people. There were no medical experts, but they were meeting together to solve problems. And I thought, well, okay, well, could pain be this mediating construct that if people could share their pain, could they also then start to think about you know, the causes of this pain in a more collective way. And in this group, people would say, like, look at these pharmaceutical companies and this doctor where, you know, mm -hmm. first they prescribe my kids, you know, all these prescriptions, and then, you know, they get addicted. And now they're prescribing them things to get off of the medicine. And it's all about making mm -hmm. money off of them. Or, you know, politicians, maybe, maybe they say politicians keep offering them like, you know, handouts, but that will mm -hmm. just make them, you know, not work. And just mm -hmm. all these ways of looking at bigger a bigger picture. And so I thought, well, possibly, maybe going forward, we're not going to be talking about our ident identity as workers in class, maybe we'll talk about the way that we experience pain, even in a very intimate way, but also start to connect that up to larger institutions and larger political processes. I mean, I think one reviewer told me that they thought this was sort of like a pie in the sky idea that, you know, wouldn't be practical, but I don't, I didn't really see any other way that could connect people, especially across like race and gender, in a way that um, where they could speak the same language and then start to think about bigger processes. Yeah, and it seems like in the absence of other institutions, there is a shared experience there, um, which is remarkable because the way that you've structured the book, you're kind of bracketing off different racial or ethnic groups and saying, you know, here's how this group of people um, is understanding what's happening in their community. And that's also based on like the duration of time that they've lived there. So there's another dimension but every single one of them has a through line of this kind of, you know, deeply, deeply personal pain that is not in any way um, ameliorated by the things that should be helping it. And and it's interesting that it draws out some of those um, idiosyncratic beliefs because it's like, they seem to be um, really compassionate in certain moments, right? And then broadly, broadly discriminatory in others. But there is a, a through line of compassion saying, well, people who deserve, who really need help, they should be getting help, right? Um, but we don't want people to abuse it. So I was, I was wondering if you could talk about... Um, in the last election, we saw a kind of wave of progressive policies in places where people wouldn't really expect it, uh, particularly with Florida and the $15 minimum wage. And it seems like your book really gets at that. Like reading about these subjects, they may say, oh, I'm a Republican or I never vote or my dad was a Democrat, but, you know, the lizard people are running things now. But when you talk to them about real policies, they're like, yeah, we should have health care. People are suffering. I want drug addiction treatment available. So can you talk about the potential for, you know, the left channeling some of that pain into progressive ballot measures and organizing around those shared experiences? Yeah, I mean, there was a real sense that, 
um, as Americans or as, you know, workers that people uh, did deserve to be part of a social uh, contract and that like the idea that, you know, you wouldn't have basic health care, basic opportunities like, you know, quality education or just basic quality, you know, housing that was safe for your children. Like people, like they, they weren't rejecting help at all. They were thinking, why is it that we have, you know, these billionaires are making so much money and, um, you know, the politicians are making so much money, but I can't even live when I like make these sacrifices. And so that instinct was there um, for sure in a way that I think surprised me. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I do think, I think the left could absolutely channel this idea of, you know, you, uh are like working hard or you're you know you have kids and they deserve opportunity and you know the government's job is is to provide these basic necessities i think the hang up it ends up being about who deserves them and who doesn't in Mm -hmm. certain cases when you know for example if you think refugees or um you know only underrepresented minorities whatever are getting this and i'm not mm-hmm. people get resentful or people who don't work hard are getting them but i work really hard and so it's like maybe you'd have to think about i mean i think in one sense if people didn't feel like resources were so scarce and there were enough to go around um mm-hmm. I, I think that could help that a lot because if you felt like you were getting what you needed um i think you wouldn't be so angry about other people who seem to get more than they needed so mm-hmm. i think I, that could be like like one one way of thinking about that. Yeah, um, you have yeah. you have a story in your book about uh, one of your interviewees says something like, you know, like uh, I, I'm a big entitlements guy. Like I, I come from like a you know like a, a, a like you know proud union household that like you know right. always supported like working class policies and like you know old school democratic politicians. Like I'm a big entitlements guy. And then he says like literally minutes later, like, but we don't like handouts <laughs> and like, <Yep. laughs> and like the kind of distinction between the two things, which you might think of as synonymous, I think is really interesting. And again, you know, just shows how, how, how your interview subjects are both extremely rational, but also pretty idiosyncratic. And like, I just want to say again, like, I loved reading those stories. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think that the fact that these people are so idiosyncratic, like made them extremely human. Um, you know, Ariella and I, who who both grew up, you know, not in major cities in kind of small towns, like we were like, hey, like, we know all these people, you know, yeah. so it was very deeply humanizing. <laughs> oh, thank you. I feel like in sociology, um, some, some people were like, well, we need more like categories, or you need ways to group them. And I, and I felt like, no, I'm in this book, I'm actually going to let them, I'm going to show everything that doesn't fit into my categories. And I'm mm-hmm. going to try to explain it with this lens of pain, but also understand that um, I just feel like you had to get to know the whole person. Um, and mm-hmm. in the case you're bringing up, this is someone who really did believe in government um, providing opportunity, but he also, he had been feeling this like increasing sense of meaninglessness in life where he did, he really did believe that everything was, everything now has been about profit and that mm-hmm. there was no more sense of like helping each other and caring about a whole. This was a, this was a sense he learned in, when he was in Vietnam and now um, he mm-hmm. still has it. So he kept saying nothing means anything anymore. And, you know, he's looking at his own children who are suffering from addiction. And he's saying, is it is it because, you know, they didn't they weren't able to develop their soul and spirit through jobs and hard work? Is that what happened mm-hmm. to them? Is that why they turned to drugs? He, like, he's sort of like grasping for straws to understand mm-hmm. this is the extremely painful, extremely scary experience of, you know, children who have a heroin addiction and he's helpless. Mm-hmm. And so it's like people are just trying to piece 
together everything any way that they can. And again, I think it kind of goes back to this lack of community and maybe a lack of way of putting all those pieces together in a narrative that that is more consistent. Yeah, you know, a lot of these stories reminded me of people that I grew up with and the through line of military service was particularly interesting. Um, in my town, it's very similar to where you did your field work. There's a volunteer fire department, volunteer EMTs, lots of military service, particularly among, you know, like my co cohort from high school who came up with the Iraq war, you know, the foundation laid perfectly for rural kids to go and fight. And there was, um, a kid in my town who <clears throat> served in Iraq. He came back, he had extreme PTSD and, um, didn't recover. There's no resources really um, for healthcare. Um, so a lot of people are underinsured. And he committed suicide and his father and grandfather were on the volunteer fire department service. And they responded to that because it's such a small town. And it it crushes, it crushes people. It crushes these bonds for years and years and years. And you see it fracture out in a community, these like really grim moments. Um, and what I saw was um, my town, you know, that was mostly Republican and conservative, but again, very, very similar libertarian ideas, super, super liberal left ideas completely get behind Trump. And they really, um, he appealed to them because he was an outsider. He was constantly being ridiculed and scorned by establishment people who would say, oh, he's just a failed businessman. He's a failed billionaire. He's gone bankrupt. Not knowing, as your book so astutely points out, that Personal development through failure is like one of the cornerstones of people's identities in communities where failure is extremely common. Mm -hmm. um, right. And these elites saying, oh, he failed. It's like the worst. Yeah, right? it seems you know, like they feel they, that condescension right all the time. Or, or, you know, doing his work for him, basically. Right, right. So I was wondering if you could talk about the appeal of Trump to some of the participants in your book. And why they liked his um, less savory aspects for liberals, right? Him being blatantly racist or him being crude or crass to them was a virtue. They were like, he doesn't care. Mm -hmm. He doesn't and care I, about the political establishment. I also want to add on to that, that not all of the Trump fans in your study were white. And so yes. like, that's another kind of yeah. aspect of his appeal. Yeah, there are definitely things about him that appealed to people, even if they would also say, yeah, I know he's racist or, yeah, I know he's probably not going to be good for me. And so uh, I think a big one was that he seemed to speak his mind and he didn't seem constrained by political correctness. And he would just, you know, even if they didn't agree with what he was saying, they liked his style, I think, because he sort of challenged this very like elitist idea of how you're supposed to talk and how you're supposed to look. Um, and so it was almost like a breath of fresh air for them uh, to see someone who might talk like them or who didn't care. And I think him being a billionaire, you know, what they what they liked about that story, on top of this idea that he had remade himself several times was that they they believed that he wasn't doing it for the money where they believed almost mm. all politicians were just in, in this game because um, they wanted to make money off of, mm. you know, 
with lobbyists or big corporations mm -hmm. and that this I think it kind of goes back to this idea that they believe politicians would do anything to stay in power and even if that meant you know offering they would say well politicians will offer too many handouts because then they'll get votes in a way that they thought actually hurt people it's like mm. that's how the logic worked and they thought well mm -hmm. okay well Trump doesn't care about staying in power he has all this other stuff so maybe he'll actually just for four years do the right thing do something we need and mm -hmm. bring back our kind of sense of pride. Um, and so, yeah, I, many people, even people who didn't vote for him because they didn't vote still kind of liked him mm -hmm. or were entertained by him. And there were all kinds of signs up everywhere, you know, lock her up and, you know, mm -hmm. Trump digs mm -hmm. coal and all of that around. Um, Have you followed up with your interviewees since the book or since, a you know, handful. kind of funny? Yeah, mm -hmm. I've kept in touch with a handful of them. And um, most people, I think, who voted for Trump still uh, kind of liked him or liked mm -hmm. his style versus, um, although would also kind of be like, okay, you are kind of, um, mm -hmm. even if they did start to think, okay, you're kind of a racist or maybe we don't right. like this, what you're saying. But right. yeah, I think there was still a lot of support for him and people, I mean, yeah. I think in general, people often double down on their decisions, uh, mm -hmm. no matter what they believe, um, because mm -hmm. it becomes part of their story or identity as well. Mm -hmm. um, and you had asked me about like people of color who voted for Trump or who liked Trump mm -hmm. as well. Um, this is interesting. Um, I actually got to be on a panel like a month ago with a political scientist at Michigan named um, Vince Hutchings. And he was making the point that we should be cautious about this story of people of color voting for Trump because it did seem, at least in polling, that the number, like the percentage of, you know, black or Hispanic people like saying they would vote for Trump wasn't really out of the range of normal for voting for a Republican. And that it is still the case that the vast majority of people of color preferred Democrats. And so um, mm -hmm. he was he was sort of saying like, the real interesting part here is just how consistent people of color in, in preferring Democrats, not that this was an outlier. Um, but mm -hmm. and I would say in my sample, the people who seem to prefer Trump, um, part of it was like the bravado, but I think it was also about networks. So if, mm -hmm. um, for example, like there was one black man who um, had married a white woman who was from the coal region and was really integrated into her family and community. And there, I think, you know, Trump, it was more about the social situation he was in, um, mm -hmm. that, that it seemed, Trump I think, seemed to be a good person. Yeah. I think for me, at least, um, some of the uh, kind of narrative that I've been really interested in about, you know, the the people of color who voted for Trump um, is not, I mean, as you say, I think that it's totally true, or it, it, seem, it seems objectively true that, um, you know, the vast majority of people of color in the U.S., um, you know, did, did not vote for Trump. Um, and also that it wasn't outside the range of, you know, the number of people of color who usually vote for Republicans. Who voted um, for Reagan or something. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, that said, I think the interesting thing is that in very specific areas, you saw a shift uh, from how people voted in 2016 to 2020. So, you know, there have been, you know, a, a, a growing number of studies that show that in a lot of like neighbor, uh, uh, immigrant neighborhoods or, you know, in like Texas border towns, uh, communities or neighborhoods or districts that had voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, um, shifted to Trump. And I actually think wow. that's connected in some ways to uh, a lot of what you talk about in your book, which is that, you know, when institutions continue to fail people, um, they will look to 
they will look to other explanations. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think the story is as simple as, oh, well, the Democrats, you know, failed. And so now people are voting Republican, but it has to, it, mm-hmm. it goes back to what you were saying about Trump being kind of an unusual sort of figure, even if, you know, we know that he was not good for workers, not good for people of color, something about his affect or about the way that the establishment was talking about him did appeal somehow. So that's really interesting. I think that's true. Yeah. The, um, just not caring about the rules. I think right, not caring right. about mm-hmm. the rules of elite institutions. Um, there's also oh, an anecdote. Say, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say there's an anecdote in your book by um, a person who works as like a freelance contractor. And he explicitly talks about how Trump repealing the penalty for not having insurance was cheaper for him. And I think that that's something that a lot of people experienced, people who are working as contractors with this piecemeal work, who are technically small business owners because they're self-employed and who are getting hit by these pretty extreme penalties if they don't purchase insurance on the marketplace for $600 a month. They really felt like, oh, you know what my life is. You've targeted something that will immediately help me. And I I remember... um, listening to this clip where this woman was like, I don't want Hillary's hot sauce in her bag. I want Trump's tax cuts in my wallet. And it seemed like, you know, a lot of people, they're not just completely driven by, I'm an anti-racist, so I'm an anti-racist voter, right? Like they are keenly aware of every single financial aspect of their life and every single thing that a trade-off, even of a couple dollars would do to it. And that seems to be like a a part in your book um, where all of your subjects can talk about their financial situations, their debt, and relate that to how they make decisions in their life. And sometimes that is the justification for them being completely politically disengaged. And others, other times it's an explanation for them saying, well, at least, you know, this guy, this jackal <laughs> in, in this set of jackals isn't going to lie to me like the other ones and maybe I'll get a little something out of it. Yeah, that's right. And there were people in my book who voted for Obama in 2012 or 2008, and they thought, oh, he's going to fix all of my healthcare problems. And then it turned out mm-hmm. that he, it didn't. And, you know, people would say, I still can't really afford this. And there's this penalty and my health is terrible. Um, and so they kind of gave up and mm-hmm. either stopped voting or would say, okay, maybe Trump can help me with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is consistent with findings about how there were like large swaths of white working class people who left Democratic Party after Obama and kind of because they, they were so disillusioned or disappointed. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, you're right. It's like completely economically rational thinking about, okay, who's going to get my health back? This is what I need. Mm-hmm. So I right. Your book um, has a lot of people who are like uh, very open about wanting armed violence and insurrection. And there are two current examples that seem to um, be explained a lot by what the subjects in your book say. So the first is the Capitol riot. The second is the response to lockdown. And it seems to me that the second response, the response to lockdown, people talked about it being astroturfed by conservative groups, you know, telling people make a sign being like, I need to get a haircut and so on. But some of the people seem to genuinely be 
suffering at the deprivation of social interaction. And when you read these stories, it makes a lot of sense because people are extremely isolated already. And maybe the only place that they have to interact with people is like the pizza parlor or the Lions Club or, you know, a local community group. And they had already prior to the pandemic said like, they're going to try to take everything from me. I have to have as many guns as possible and arm myself so that they can't pull me away from my people, basically. And so to me, after having read this, both of those responses kind of make a lot more sense. I was wondering if you could talk about your perspective on both the pandemic protests and the Capitol riot. Sure, yeah. So in 2015 and 2016, I did meet a handful of white working class men who told me explicitly that they were preparing for war and that there was a race war coming and we were going to fight it out in the streets. And one person actually had created his own militia and they would hold drills and have like take back our town rallies and, you know, purposely walk by the houses of people of color. Um, and so, and then the people of color were kind of scared, especially like 4th of July parades would be kind of scared to leave their mm-hmm. house. Um, and, you know, we're, the people of color were very aware of institutionalized racism and policing and racial profiling. And but at that point, weren't really um, protesting it actively. So in some ways, this idea that like a race war is coming, like when insurgency happened and all these uh, open protests also around like the monuments in the south Mm -hmm. especially like this was stuff that I kind of almost was ready for because I had heard from these people and in the beginning I think people who'd hear me present would say like who are these crazies you rounded up um but it turns out like they definitely were kind of tapping (laughs) I was tapping into something that was going on this idea Mm -hmm. that we have to take control we have to take to the streets we can't count on the government to defend us and also this idea that the government was trying to control us um, so we had to go out on our own. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think with the lockdown, it was intense fear. People would say it's going to be martial law. Like we're going to lose all of our rights and we have to be ready to fight. And so I think that happened too. Um, on top mm-hmm. of the social part where, I mean, they didn't want to be told what to do by the government for sure. And then I know in the coal region, one of my former respondents told me that, so bars would make, uh, bars and like fire clubs, which were attached would say like, okay, mm-hmm. well you, you can, um, drink here, but you have to always like, or be eating while you're drinking. So you don't stay all night. So then people would order like one plate of French fries and still stay all night drinking, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> to like really mm-hmm. kind of protest that. So yeah, I, I, I think it was about the con- feeling like mind control or social control was happening too. And these groups were already in place. So it wasn't like suddenly something happens or oh, they Trump snaps his fingers. Holding, yeah. You know, and then, yeah, yeah, they were holding their drills. They were practicing. They were, I mean, they would literally say, I'm preparing for war and they would be serious. Mm -hmm. And I think I was kind of like, ha ha. You know, like, how do I respond to that? Uh, Were you surprised when you saw the Capitol riots after having Um, talked to people who were. Honestly, yeah, not really. Um, And I had done another project with um, Brookings like a few months ago where I also ended up talking to um, a few like rural white men who had been at the Unite the Right rally, but who were also Mm -hmm. talking very seriously about, and these men were kind of also like economically very leftist, but were still Mm -hmm. thinking they had to take to the streets and they were really into being white and really into tracing their lineage back to the Mayflower and, you know, Mm -hmm. how they were the real Americans who had to defend it. And they were Mm -hmm. definitely into like having guns and being so afraid the government would take their guns away. So not really, I would say I wasn't that 
surprised that they would at least do this for sure. One thing that you point out is that in the absence of like other status markers or way of being valued, like I'm, I have this job and this is, you know, my home that I can definitely afford and I'm not at risk of losing and so on and so forth. They default to a masculine identity of being the protector because they can't be the provider. And it seems like a lot of these kind of broadly more popular conspiracy theories like QAnon feeding into the riots or COVID is a hoax um, feeding into like armed marches to reopen towns comes from this long-standing sense of like white male identity as protector and a grieved provider, you know, being robbed of the right to provide, being robbed of the right to thrive. And then this gets articulated through white supremacy because white supremacy in America has always been an economic program. It's just only for white people. It's it's not just about we want the right to hate uh, people of color. We want the right to build walls. We want the right to, you know, kill or attack them. It's also how wealth is distributed and and it clearly articulates it. And the problem with privilege pro- politics is that privilege politics is like, yes, that's correct. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is why you have everything. It's because you're white. And so when people are hearing that and they don't have very much or they're, they feel like it's slipping through their grasp, it seems like in your book you make the case that all they have left is the role of protector. I think that's true. It's in the coal region. And you can see this long history of, you know, white men being in unions and making sure they kept black men into the most menial jobs and or, you know, and if the economy was like not doing well, they black men would be the first to lose the jobs. So there was mm-hmm. certainly a uh, racial and economic hierarchy that was like long rooted. And this was also a place where if um, there were a few examples that were almost recent, people told me about of black families trying to move in and sort of being driven out with threats of violence. Mm-hmm. And um, I do think it, it it is all kind of hanged together. But for many of the white men, a big part of their identity was a provider. And they saw themselves as being willing to sacrifice their bodies and do anything to bring home money. But they couldn't really do that anymore. And they also had lost a lot of authority in the family that I think came from that role. So, mm-hmm. you know, they were also dealing with, you know, having kids when they weren't married or their marriage is not lasting or feeling like their wives didn't respect them. And um so I do think that kind of like protector role became magnified for them. Um, it's protecting your wife, protecting your children um, mm-hmm. or your you know girlfriend or partner, um, showing your strength through like violence uh, versus like, mm-hmm. you know, a solid worker identity. Um, mm-hmm. I think that did become really important for them. So I have a question. It's slightly outside of your the scope of your book, maybe. But um, when I was reading about kind of this working class uh, turn inward, it made me think about the professional managerial class also, perhaps because we did an episode about the PMC just, just last time. Um, and, you know, I think obviously for different reasons and in very different conditions than, you know, your working class subjects. I think a lot of professional managerial class people have also sort of turned inward. Um, so you, instead of the language of self-help, it's maybe the language of self-care, right? Um, right. Or, development. you know, like yeah, yeah. development, yeah, like working on the self. Um, and also, you know, it, I, I think, you know, um, the this is a group of people who are probably still more politically engaged in some ways. But at the same time, like, 
I was recently looking at Lena Dunham's Instagram and she had a like little like graphic that said reparations must be interpersonal and ongoing. Um, and to me, <laughs> mm-hmm. to me, that seemed like Sorry. an example again. <laughs> so painful. So painful. <laughs> right. 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 Um, right. But it seemed like, it seemed like, um, a kind of, um, obviously an effort to engage politically or to kind of like, uh, to kind of uh, express a political affiliation, but at the same time, it was so individualized, right? Like in, reparations must be quote interpersonal. Um, so I'm wondering, right, or if like you see... taking care of myself is politically active because mm-hmm. right, exactly, no, no. right, like right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering. I guess my question is, even though obviously there's a huge, vast difference between you know people who sort of turn inward as pain management, as you put it, and then kind of like the PMC slash goop style of turning inward, is there a connection between the two or are are they both symptoms of something larger? That's a great question. It, every time, every example you gave me, we want to just vomit on screen so bad. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, so there's a sociologist named Ava Aluz, and there's also been some work done on this by like Ofer Sharon at MIT, but I think this actual therapeutic language actually did originate within the professional managerial class. And it originated actually in the workplace. And it was all about kind of self-development and um, basically taking control of your own emotions and learning how to manage yourself as a worker. And it seems like kind of teaching everyone to be an independent contractor. And I think this language seeped kind of in to the intimate sphere for the professional managerial class where it's about managing yourself and right you do self-care so that you're become like a more productive um kind of happier person and learning Mm -hmm. basically learning how to take control of your own emotions instead of thinking about any other kind of life and um it was only a few years ago actually i found this in my first book coming up short which is to think about Mm -hmm. how this language is transformed and picked up by working class people um and so the narrative of like self-control Role and managing one's own emotion and harnessing them for growth um, is part of the working class self um, mm-hmm. for sure now in ways that lots of people thought like, oh, if you're working class, you're worried about survival. You're not thinking about, you know, emotional self-help, but you actually are. And, you mm-hmm. know, this emotional self-help really dovetails with the story of how you have to basically take control of your own fate and not depend on other people, which is like really convenient for capitalism. Um, (laughs) And so I do think, right, there is a way that maybe it manifests slightly differently because of resources, but the idea of an emotional self that you have to take care of or harness seems to be um, everywhere Mm -hmm. in our culture. Who was your guest for Professional managerial. Oh, it was Catherine Liu. Do you know her? I love her. Yes, I'm reading her. Because, <laughs> no, wow. She was, she was amazing. Her years ago. She's the yeah. funniest tweeter I've ever met. And yeah. I love her too. Okay. Oh, we need to do a, a show where both of you are on because coming up short is exactly um, a kind of parallel to some of the things that she talks about in her book about the professional managerial class virtue hoarders, where this sort of like emotional self-development and emotional psychotherapy development is like a type of social good. Um, which I think is also part of the like men will literally read everything about Star Wars before going to therapy kind of shift <laughs> on Twitter. Um, and I think people really think it's kind of only nested in um, middle class or upper middle class people. But coming up short follows working class younger people taking up these ideas and trying to understand how um 
broad systemic failures once again, like student loan debt or inability to um, have a consistent long-term relationship because of precarity in a person's life, how those can become like stepping stones on the road to self-development. And it's kind of crushing to read because they really end up um, foregoing all types of social bonds and doubling down on the social poverty that they're already experiencing. Um, yeah, it's it's very, very good. And I wish we could have you talk about that one next. <laughs> we'll have to have you come back on the show. Maybe we'll come with Catherine and I'll talk yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. I think this is a good place to wrap up. Um, I really want to thank you for taking time to talk to us. Oh, I know no, that it's thank hard you. to carve I loved it out. It. You two are amazing <laughs> interviewers and I've just, I learned a lot Thanks. from you and it was really fun. Yeah. We'll definitely have you back to talk about coming up short. So fun. And we'll I'll deal with we'll, my lighting issues before then. We'll, we'll pass along your fandom to Catherine also. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. We should I'm have you both on a panel. You can just talk about the self-care industry broadly across class. Yeah. Rural, so urban. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That would be great. That sounds good. Thank, thank you so much. So this much. was great. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, you're muted. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Kale specifically also said unmute yourself before the interview ends. So, of course, I didn't do that. Um, I just want to say I loved doing that interview. Um, hope you guys enjoyed watching it. And since uh, Jennifer brought up or since we talked about the Capitol riots with Jennifer, um, David, I wanted to ask you if growing up in like gun country, like altered your perception or like how it shaped your perception of the Capitol riots, because Idaho's open carry and people mm. show up to the Capitol with guns all the time, not all the time, but like, it's not unusual. And so when the Capitol riots were happening, I was watching and I was like, okay, this is obviously like scary and fucked. But I was mm -hmm. also like, wait, they don't even really have that many guns. And I was like, I, I must have some kind of like Idaho brain damage. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I mean, it's an unfortunate, you know, in Texas, they they changed the rules uh. Uh, to make it open carry recently, which is actually mm. even funnier um, that it's something that, you know, came much later in my life. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, definitely, I, I will say, you know, I don't get any kind of encouragement when I see people showing up to any kind of rally like that with too many guns. Yeah, uh, it's unfortunate. It's honestly has been a, a really dangerous proliferation. Uh, not to not to be heavy to your light, um, but uh, you know, I mean, for sure. I mean, one of the things about the Capitol riots too that I was saying to folks though was just like, God, these people all look like my boss. Mm, right? Like yeah. I've worked for these people my entire <laughs> right, life. Right. Um, and it was, I don't know, like uh, the way that people analyze that specific moment in, in U.S. history is probably, um, I, I doubt that actually people are going to go back and excavate too much, but it's probably mm -hmm. one of the more confused, like, again, substituting class for culture mm -hmm, uh, moments mm -hmm. in, yeah, in our definitely. history. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw, there was a Washington Post article today that talked about how like something like 60% of the people who were arrested for their participation in the Capitol riots, like had actually had like serious financial trouble. And that's mm -hmm. not to say that they were like poor or working class, because as you sort of alluded to, like, I think a lot of them were actually bosses or they were like small business owners or, you know, um, were, were otherwise 
otherwise, you know, not not like low wage service sector mm-hmm. workers, so to speak. Um, but at the same time, I think that the fact that they were in a lot of financial distress, like I don't think that they stormed the Capitol as like a kind of <laughs> as like a working class uprising, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's again, it it kind of I think that it. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like a lot of people were in debt. Um, you know, a lot of people owed a lot of taxes. Um, and uh, it's it's a really interesting situation, like you said, um, because, again, you know, these these were not necessarily the poorest of the poor. I don't think we can say that, but um, there's something going on there. I, I think that's exactly it. And like because I know everybody loves to to take these things out of context and sprint mm-hmm. to the most absurd direction. The point here is, at least for me, and I've been really, I've been loving, uh, you know, Matt Chrisman of, of Chappos has been doing these really great uh, live streams on this issue. And he made a really phenomenal point about those those people. And that Washington Post uh, story really highlights it well, which is that monopoly capitalism is coming for everybody, mm-hmm. right? So even if you are like relatively well off, they are seeing themselves be squeezed. It's very different from what like the typical working class person is experiencing it, but they are seeing, you know, their, their worlds foreclosed on, you know, there was a piece in the financial times, maybe a month ago, and I'm sorry, I didn't have it prepared to bring up or anything like that, but where you have the Starbucks, um, you know, one of the C-suite members of, you know, the Starbucks corporation, very subtly bragging and saying things are going to be really great for Starbucks in the next few months because all of the coffee shops around the world are going to be closing and we can put Starbucks companies in there. Right. Which me, and I bring that up to say, it's like, of course, as somebody who's owning, you know, a restaurant or a coffee shop is a bit better off than like the average working person, but monopoly capital is coming for them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There you Thanks so much. We got an excellent man on there. Right. It's like they're <laughs> pushing this, uh, you know, this narrative. Right. Mm-hmm. P- just because people are recognizing that, you know, they're being squeezed and they're having financial issues. And again, very different from the typical working class. Right. Person, but they're re- they're seeing a world that's closing in on them. And just like you all were talking about in the uh, in the interview about conspiracy theories. Right. You come up with these, you know, with, with stories. Right. And I don't think that that's something that's particularly limited to to poor working class people, by the way. You know, and that's why, you know, QAnon, people love to cite this, that like QAnon is actually very, you know, prominent amongst people who have gone to some, you know, level of higher education and who have some level of, of income, right? Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's not that surprising that people are, you know, are reacting. They're seeing something happen, right? Again, it's not saying, oh, we need to, you know, form some kind of radical red-brown alliance with, you know, all the Trumpers who are showing up at the Capitol. It's doing your job as a socialist to say there is a shift that is happening around us and mm-hmm. trying to understand what's happening instead mm-hmm. of just dismissing it like a liberal would. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think um, something that Jacobin has tried to do both on the channel and, you know, on, on the blog and in print is to look at what kinds of material conditions may have precipitated the capital riots and mm-hmm. like what we can do, what kind of economic program we can put forth to um, alleviate some of those, not not just because we want to alleviate hardship for the people who stormed the capital, although like... I, like, I mean, like we should alleviate hardship for everybody, but, mm-hmm. but if we're truly serious about, you know, quashing or eradicating far right violence, like this is actually one way it, w- it won't get rid of everything, but this is one important way to do that. And honestly, you know, I think, I think that that is a much more productive conversation than quite honestly, just being like, this is white supremacy. Those people are white supremacists. I mean, yeah. sure. Some of them were, I'm I'm sure, but like, 
what is the answer then? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, just on that too, it's like, you know, again, don't be an idiot. Don't be like some kind of Jimmy Dore moron who's not able to see, you know, things for what they are. Uh, but don't react so far uh, to the other side where you're not paying attention to what's happening on the ground. And what I mean by that was what we were just talking about is the fact that, you know, people are reacting to something that's happening around them. And that what happened, that was a spectacle through and through and a spectacle that the media participated in a lot of, right? And these characters, like, well, we opened up uh, the segment earlier today with Anderson Cooper, right? They were pink in the cheeks. Mm -hmm. They were pink in the cheeks to be able to sit there for eight hours and attack, you know, any idea of, you know, serious like social unrest or protest movement, right? That Like that was a very fun moment. It was, um, yeah. For, for them, they really enjoyed it, right? And those are people who are extremely comfortable in the system. Again, it's not saying we need to build some kind of crazy red, brown alliance. It's understanding the dynamics at play so that we can make educated and intelligent strategic decisions going forward. And as the producer, I want to do a quick little plug. Hey, guys, sorry to scare you. <laughs> no, that was um, great. Pop in anytime. <laughs> but uh, if you want to read more of what Janice is saying oh. about the all right, she has an article in the latest issue of Jacobin, and uh, it's on the website. But, uh, oh, look, you, you have to be a subscriber <laughs> to read it. Oh, no. I, I, was, I was about to say this is clearly just a, a ploy to get more subscribers. But you should subscribe. There, there are many good articles in this issue. Um, I mentioned the one by Megan Day earlier, which is great. Um, there's a really good article by Dino Guastella about why everyone hates the Democrats, which, of course, is our favorite subject. <laughs> um, so do subscribe. That's right. Dino's the man. <laughs> Well, um, I think on that note, uh, we got we got the Jacobin plug. Uh, we got Kale popping in the middle. Um, and do you want to make any last plug for Left Reckoning? I mean, we, we talked a little about its Western theme before, but uh, what do you have to say? What do you have to say for yourself? Yeah, um, Left Reckoning is a project between myself and Matt Leck uh, where we're trying to build off of the work that we were able to do with our you know really close friend and comrade Michael Brooks over these past four years together. We want to make sure that that legacy uh, was continuing. So it's very much a show that is rooted in international politics, um, in the global like worker struggle, but also taking a particular focus on what ha is happening um, in the United States as well. So some upcoming uh, themes that we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking with some really great labor organizers on uh, next week's episode about the labor movement in Alabama, including Amazon, but also broad broad-based. Uh, we'll also be talking with Grace Blakely next week as well about the COVID economy. Uh, next week, we're going to be, uh, sorry, tomorrow at, at uh, Thursdays at 8 Eastern, we'll be joined by uh, Ben Burgess, um, friend of uh, Jackman. He's going to be uh, showing up to do some of his logic nerd stuff and also talk about one of his more recent pieces in Jacobin. And also um, the very first episode of Left Reckoning, we, we uh, reacted to this like liberal secession fantasy, right? Where all the blue states are going to leave the country. Um, and a new dumb, uh, sorry, I don't know what the rules are. I'm cursing with y'all, but uh, um, you know, a new, a new version of that just dropped as we were live today. So Matt and I will definitely be de debunking that. So check us out for that as well. Great. So yes, everybody, again, tune into Left Reckoning. Um, it's a great show. And thank you so much, David, for pinch hitting on the Jacobin show. Um, we'll have to have you back as soon as possible. But this was great. So thank you. Yeah, happy to do it. All right. Good night, guys. We'll see you next time.